So good morning, everyone. I'm very, very happy and pleased to be here. And it's really a privilege. I just uh, landed yesterday. And uh, I'm here for it only for a few days. But I'm really, really happy to be here at Yale's place. And um, so I'll just introduce myself, and then, uh, and then we'll start. i tell you what, we're gonna, what, we're, what we'll be doing this morning. So my name is Neil Menusi, and I live in Israel. And I grew up um, in a very ultra-secular home. Um, and my father was actually a kind of well-known person in uh, celebrity in, in Israel, being well-known for uh, being, he wrote political satire, which was very left-wing and very secular and very anti-everything uh, else. <laughs> and um, so the Israeli ones should know him. His name was Didi Minusi. If you're Israeli and you're over 40, then you, you would have heard his name. And then I, at the university, I, uh, I, at first I became even more anti-religious, because <laughs> uh, that's what university does. I became more sort of philosophically um, argued. But, um, but then I, I met someone very special, very interesting, whom you may have met here. I think he was here a while ago. His name, was Rabbi, his name is Rabbi Moshe Genut. And so I met him many, many years ago, over 20 years ago at the university. And he basically turned my life upside down and, um, and broke all the stigmas and, and images that I had of what being religious is like and what it could be. And then I started on this long journey, which is still, still going on, Shalom, of, uh, of getting to know the Jewish world and getting to know the Torah, especially, and getting to know the infinite wisdom that's in the Torah. And and I came in, I came to Judaism with my own sort of sets of questions. Uh, because having grown up in a very, very secular home, um, and some, I could say that the first question I had to Hashem was, well, if, if, if there's this treasure called the Torah, and there's all this amazing beauty and depth, and I, I have been disconnected from it, you made me, you made it so that I would be born and would be raised up until I was 26 uh, to have zero connection to my Judaism, <laughs> zero connection to this wisdom of the Torah. And why did you do this so? Well, you could have just made me be born. If this is part of me and I'm part of it and I'm supposed to have it, then you should have uh, made it so that I would be born into a firm home. But you made it so that I was born into a secular home and be totally immersed uh, in non-Jewish wisdom and thoughts and ideas and sensibilities and, uh, and thinking and so on. And the answer that came very simple, was very sort of the straightforward answer was that I had to go through this in order to be a kind of mediator or a translator. Uh, going in both directions, meaning that uh, what I'm trying to do, and that's what I've been trying to do over the past 20 years, is I've been trying to take ideas from the Torah and sort of translate them and convey them and explain them and dress them up in contemporary language in a way that appeals and, and you know, um, is understandable, makes sense to people who live today with their sensitivities and their sensibilities and their questions. And also the other way around, that is taking, quest, taking topics and ideas and questions that are sort of in the air in the modern world, in the secular world, that the religious world has to deal with them, the Jewish world has to deal with them, and try and, and bring them in in a good way. 
and sort of clarify them and, 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 and try and develop, cultivate a kind of Jewish understanding of these issues. And one of these issues, uh, which pertains to what, we're, what we want to do now, uh, was feminism. Because I grew up, like everyone who grows up today, in a modern, secular home, then, among other things, feminism is, is a basic thing. It's like the most basic thing there is. And gender equality is something that goes without saying. I saw my parents both working and having careers and working together. And I grew up in a very egalitarian society, in a mixed school. And, and I was a feminist, you know? I, wasn't, I didn't have to declare it in any way. I was just a feminist like everyone else. But then you, you come to the religious world, you come to the Jewish world, and the first thing you see is you see that there's a lot of separation, there's a lot of uh, things that are they're not treated the same, not necessarily not equally, but differently. And there are different mitzvahs, there are different customs, and generally the differences between men, men and women are much more seen to be meaningful. And some things seem to me to be not equal, and that was a big question. So there were many issues that I had, but this was one of them. And this uh, uh, sparked a kind of exploration of this whole issue. Um, because I was coming, looking at it through the eyes of some, someone who comes from modern Western secular societies, and, and asking those questions, then I, I wanted to really understand how the Torah sees men and women. And this whole issue of the rise of the feminine in modern culture that the status of women has changed, that women are getting equal rights and are having a say in everything that's going on. And I wanted to see if the Torah uh, echoes this in any way and talks about it in any way. And I've discovered some really amazing things. And the main thing I discovered, and this sort of will lead us into what we want to really explore uh, this morning, which I'll, I'll just give you a sort of heading. We want to talk about Miriam. We want to talk about the character, the figure of Miriam, we want to start with what the Torah, the Torah, the actual written Torah, has to say about her, and then what the Midrashim, what the sages' commentary, added to this story, and then what the Kabbalah and the Hasidut, the esoteric level, the Sod level, the level, the inner dimension of the Torah, what it has to say about Miriam. And Miriam will here embody what I called in the title feminine spirituality, and which was something that was part... Hmm? Because she was uh, uh, the sort of the the unknown shepherdess, we'll call her. There were three. We're now still in the story of the desert and the the, the voyage, the journey of Israel through the desert. And much is said about Moses and Aaron, but little, relatively, is said about Miriam. So she was a leader. And she was a leader and a prophetess. Her and yeah, yeah. And in many ways, we will see that she embodies more than other, more than other women. So I wrote a whole book about the women of the Torah, which is supposed to be the beginning of a series. So the, and she's one of the chapters. But from all the women there, it, she's the most spiritual in many ways. So Sarah is also a prophetess, and, and Tamar is an incredible figure, and the daughters of Tzlofchad are there, and many. But she's the most spiritual in many ways, being uh, a, 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 lead, a, a leader of women, who, and so we'll see in a minute. So, but the thing I want to start out with is that um, looking into this topic of feminism and the rise of the feminine, then if you go into this, then the, the most important thing you discover 
is that the Arizal, that is the holy Ariya, Ariya Kadosh, the greatest Kabbalist, lived in the 16th century. He's like the watershed of Kabbalah. All the branches of Judaism basically agree that he's like the greatest Kabbalist. And he, in, so he didn't write himself, but his student, Rav Chaim Vital, he wrote the Torah of the Ari. And in the main book, which is called the Etz Chaim, there's a chapter called Shar Mi'ut Yareach. It's about the diminishing of the moon. And he talks about the fact that as history progresses and as time progresses, then the feminine rises. And history is marked by the, the gradual rise of feminine energy, feminine light, the feminine point of view, up until absolute total equality between the feminine and the masculine. Before this equality, then the masculine is leading the way, and it sort of has a higher status, and women seem to be lagging behind, or not to be as important as it was throughout most of history. But this is gradually changing, and accelerating in some ways. And once it reaches full equality, then women will have a direct spiritual inspiration. It wouldn't have to go only through the male influencer, the male mashpia, as it was before, that the men would study Torah and they would teach the women. But women will have an independent channel or connection to the Torah and to the and to an inspiration to have their own chidushei Torah, their own new ideas, new interpretations to the Torah, their own insights, and then there will be true mutual reciprocity between men and women. Because not only he would have light to give to her, but she would have light to give to him. And they would be totally equal, and they would share one crown. That's the term that he uses. It's taken from the, from the Talmud, the idea of sharing one crown. So he has this vision, it's an amazing vision, and we're talking about the 16th century. So it's something that, it's not a reaction to feminism, it's not a reply to feminism. It's 200 years before the first sort of inkling, or the first glimmer of, of feminism in the 18th century, which then took off at the end of the 19th century. So this is long before, it's not apologetic, it's not something that he has to explain, you know, because people are asking why is there inequality. He's saying this because he, he, he goes deep into the Torah and he shows how this is um, strengthened by many, many verses and many midrashim and many, many sources. Rabbi, do you prefer questions at the end? Or yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because this is going on YouTube and uh, it's better if we I'll, I'll finish the class and then we'll definitely we'll, we'll have time for questions. It's very important. Um, now, when we're talking about the rise of the feminine, we're not just talking about women becoming more evolved and more sophisticated and more enlightened and so on, although definitely that too, we're talking about a certain kind of way of looking at the world and way of studying the Torah and way of uh, experiencing things and way of communicating things. And this, of course, goes for men as well. So when, when I'm talking about the rise of feminine spirituality or the emergence, the re-emergence of feminine spirituality, this goes for men as well as women, not just women. This is something, there's a kind of shift that's going on between a masculine perspective and a feminine perspective. So I'll just give you one short idea demonstrating this in a very beautiful way. And this is very much connected to the heart of what Hasidut is all about, Hasidism. Like this whole rise of this kind of new Torah that's coming out of the Kabbalah, but is much more emotional, more psychologically oriented, which is, that's what Hasidut is all about. It's about trying and read 
everything in the Torah, the stories and the commandments and the specific halachot and, and, and understanding ourselves from a more psychologically uh, tuned perspective. So the idea is this. Garden of Eden, there were three sinners. It started with a snake. The snake seduced Eve, and Eve seduced Adam. So it was Nachash, the snake, and Chava, Eve, and then Adam. But when uh, they, were being, they were given their sort of punishments, it was in the reverse order. Why? Because the rectification has to go in the reverse order. That's how it goes. And the Torah says this, and because we see that the order of the sinning is the opposite of the order of the way they were rectified. So the idea is, in a deeper way, it's not just punishments. Punishment means the rectification. So the idea goes that first the masculine element or the masculine side of the original sin has to be rectified. Then we have to move and rectify the feminine. And then we need to rectify the snake, which is something that's somehow more um, visceral and more basic to, toward human nature beyond or before the split into the, the gender differences. So how does this come about in the history of Judaism? So it goes about that throughout most of history, the way that uh, the Torah gave us tools to work with our own psychological makeup and to rectify our attributes and to become better people was using a masculine perspective. What do I mean by a masculine perspective? I mean that, uh, just a side note, the Zohar explains that the three sinners, Adam, Chava, and the snake, correspond to three levels in the human soul. So Adam corresponds to the brain, which is the, the intellect, and Chava corresponds to the heart, which is the emotional level, and the snake corresponds to the, 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 the term in the Zohar is the liver, but really it means like the gut or the belly or the level of instinct the level of desires. It's really like thoughts and feelings and desires. So we see that Chava is like the heart that's sort of torn between the two sides, pulling her. Is she loyal more to Adam or more to the snake? This is, it's an inner drama within ourselves. And so the snake, the, the belly, the gut, begins the sin, and then it tempts the heart, and the heart sort of sways the head into its direction. So together in Hebrew, it's moch lev kaved, which has the acronym of melech, the king. Someone for whom it's, it's in the right order, he's like, he's like a king. It's like he stands upright and it's all good. But the, the order that the sin took place, it reverses this order. And it, it sort of breaks everything down. So what does it mean that the rectification of the, of the, of the human psyche, the human soul, was through a masculine perspective? It means it all began with the head. And the head would sort of lecture the heart. This, this whole system was called the Musal system. Musal is when, in Hebrew we say lehatif musar. Lehatif musar is to preach. And literally it means to sort of spray. Lehatif is like tipot, letaftef tipot. It's like to, the, the head has all the truth, and the head is standing above the heart, and it's sort of lecturing or preaching the heart. It's sort of sprinkling truth, lehatif musar, on the heart, and the heart is supposed to sort of obey. And that's how it was. When, there, when someone would come to the shul, he was a magid musar, he would, be, would preach musar, he would preach how people should behave. He would stand sort of above everyone else, and he would preach them how they should behave. And he would say, this is the wrong way to behave, and this is the right way to behave. It's very, it's very rational, it makes sense. 
and then the, the heart would sort of cringe or would be sort of afraid by this and would, would try and keep up with this. And they would go home and they would replicate this dynamic within themselves, just like the preacher was above them. And so lecturing them, they would go home and then their intellect would lecture their hearts. And it's good for a while. That, that's how you rectify the sort of, the, that's a masculine way of trying to rectify yourself. When the Baal Shem Tov came, it was time to transition to doing, working in a feminine way. In a feminine way means that you, it means, it means you do it just like the baby is here sort of crying. It's like the, the heart would cry and the brain would sort of shush the heart and again would tell him this is the way to behave. But now the Baal Shem Tov, he likes the babies and he likes the hearts. And he says we have to work with the heart, not above the heart. You don't lecture the heart, you don't preach the heart. You work with the heart. And all Hasidus, in many, many ways, is transitioning from a masculine Musar type of inner work to a feminine heart-oriented work. It still has a lot of intellect, it's very deep Hasidic Torahs, but the, the, what differentiates them from the previous approaches was that now he's trying to find direct routes and channels to reach the heart directly, not indirectly through the head, as was in all the classic Musar books, but directly. That means having sort of surprising, intuitive, powerful Torahs that, that, that they, they sort of shoot arrows at the heart directly. Before you understand them, you feel something very powerful, and then you can think about them. It's a different approach. Or having much more nigunim, music. Music is a very indirect, a very, sorry, indirect way of reaching the heart. And stories. Again, a story is something that bypasses the intellect. Only when the story ends can you start thinking about it. Before, you don't think about it. You're into the story. So the heart is engaged. And for Brangans, having people sit together and, work and, and eat together and drink together and, and sing together and talk together, and this is something, all this is ways to bypass the intellect and open the heart in a more sort of eye-level approach. It's not above the heart, it's an eye-level approach. All this is supposed to sort of lead the way to the future rectification of the snake. So one of the most well-known gematrias is the snake, Nachash, has the same gematria of Mashiach, the Messiah. And it's very weird to understand, but you can understand it when you realize that when you have two things that have the same gematrical, the same numerical value, it doesn't say that they're the same or they're the opposite. It just says that there's a connection. And you need to understand what they mean in order to realize if this connection is, is saying they're, they're very much alike or they're the opposite. In this case, it's clear that it's the opposite because we can't say that Mashiach is the snake, but we can say that the, the, the last redeemer rectifies the first sinner. That makes sense. Or that the Nachash has the power of Mashiach in a negative way and the Mashiach has the power of the Nachash in a positive way. So the idea is that we had the classical Musar Torah, that was the rectification of the masculine. Then came Hasidus, which is a feminine Torah, a feminine approach, rectifies Chava. And that would sort of lead the way to the rectification, to the, to the Torah Mashiach, the Torah of Mashiach, which would go even deeper and would find a way of rectifying like the, the gut, the, the belly, the, the, the instincts. Something we can't, we're maybe beginning to, to realize today what this can be. A new kind of even post-Hasidic Torah. And now everyone knows the expression, Moach Shalit al the original Zohar says, 
which doesn't mean control the heart. It means it can, it can influence the heart. It can reach the heart. And then it also says, Lev shalita lakavid. But we don't know this expression so much. It's not quoted as often. Because the, the idea is that the, just like the snake and Chava worked together in the beginning, so the Torah Mashiach will evolve directly out of Hasidut. That's like the end of this, this idea. Okay, so this is just an introduction to go into this whole, this whole idea. So what do we mean? So that basically gives us one perspective into what is feminine spirituality. It doesn't come from above. It comes from below. We can add, um, we can add some more characteristics. Um, there was a debate in the Talmud. What is greater? In Hebrew, it goes gadol metzuveve or gadol she'eno metzuveve Is it greater to be obligated to do the mitzvahs and then do the mitzvahs because you're obligated? Or is it better, is it higher to do the mitzvahs because you feel like doing them, because you, because you want to? Gadol metzuveve it's higher, it's better to be obligated and then to do, or is it higher to do it intuitively, spontaneously? Today, almost everyone would say it's better to do it spontaneously. It's more authentic. But that's not what the sages decided. They said, no, it's higher and better if you're obligated. Because that means uh, you didn't do it for fun. You didn't do it because you wanted to. You forced yourself. You worked on yourself. And you bowed down to a higher will. So it's greater. If you do it just because you want to, then what's the, what's the big deal? You wanted to do it anyway. But in Hasidut it says, it's part of the same idea, that in the future it will be reversed. And the opinion that said the gadol she'enomitzuvevose will be there'll be like a change in the universe, and that will be considered the higher thing. This is again a shift to feminine spirituality. So the first thing was it's bottom up. It's not uh, top down. It's not from the, the head to the heart. It's from the heart to the head. And the second characteristic of feminine spirituality, it, it goes together, is that it's more things have to be authentic. They have to chime with you. You have to feel that I understand this and I connect with this and I do this. The opposite of the Talmudic idea that you're, it's obligation that you don't identify with. The identification element is very important to this. And we'll add just one more thing. This is the book that I told you about. So you can, Hebrews, Hebrew, the Hebrew readers can, can buy it. Translation is on the way, Bezrat Hashem. So, um, the third characteristic we can bring, and then we're going to see all this in Miriam, is that there's a verse in Shira Shirim, Song of Songs. It says, The sound of my lover, the voice of my lover is coming near, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. And the sages say that the, the mountains and hills refer to the fathers and mothers of Judaism, to the three fathers and the four mothers, the three patriarchs and the four matriarchs. The, the, the mountains are like the, the, the fathers and the hills are like the, the mothers. But uh, there's also the verbs. There's medaleg and kofetz, leaping and bounding. So it's, it's, on the surface, it's synonyms. It's the same idea. It's leaping. But there is a difference. Medaleg is when your both legs are in the air. So you leave the ground. And mekapet could be like skipping, that you're, not you're, you're closer to the ground. It's not as big a leap. So it's skipping or bounding. So the idea is that the masculine approach, right, uh, leaping over the mountains, 
is taking greater leap, leaps that sometimes the, the ground may feel that you left it, that you're, it doesn't, the ground has its own sort of rhythm and its own sort of pace, and it wants to proceed, step, it doesn't want to make any leaps. Bounding is also hastening things. We don't want to stay put and just be passive. We want to grow, and we want to make changes. But, but bounds are smaller, meaning it's more of an evolution, less a revolution. So feminine spirituality, the, the way of the bounding over the hills of the mothers, is more of an evolution-type um, change within you, rather than a revolution, leaping-type change within you. You don't want to leave anyone behind. That puts very simply. You, you don't want to leave any part of you behind. You want to make sure... So a, a masculine approach would say, well, part of me doesn't agree, but I'm just going to leap over it, and I'm going to go ahead with what I understand. And a feminine approach would say, no, because that part of you that le that's left behind, A, it's also important, and B, it'll come back to haunt you. It'll come back to pull you back, and, and we, need to, we, we can't leave anyone behind. So we need, we need to take care of that as well. So that's the bounding over the hills. So let's go to Miriam, and let's go to Miriam, and then... Uh, and, and, and so I'm a man, so I'm going to leap over some many, many things from your perspective. But that's why it'll be in the end when you have the questions, and then you can force me to become more feminine, which I want to, because I want to be a chassid. And then, and then, and that's how I'm going to, and then, and then I'll, I'll transition from leaps to bounds. Yeah, yeah, the chassid, that's right. Chassidut is tikkun chava. Musar is tikkun adam. That's the masculine rectification. And chassidut is tikkun chava. And torat mashiach will be the tikkun nachash. That's the, the three, rectification of the three sinners. Okay, so now we want to go to Miriam, because she's the, the heroine, she's our protagonist. So Miriam, what do we know about Miriam? Miriam appears in the Torah. There are four episodes, four stories that she appears in. That's what we have to work with. First is we meet her when she's watching over Moshe, when he's in his uh, ark in the river, in the Tevat Moshe. She, her name isn't mentioned, just like her mother's, uh, mother's name isn't mentioned, up until Moshe is given a name. His family members are not given a name, just says, and, But she's called the Alma, she's called the maiden, and she's a little girl, she's um, like um, seven years old. And she's watching over Moshe as he's drifting along the Nile River, and then she's coming to Pharaoh's daughter, and she's offering that maybe her mother will, will uh, breastfeed the, the, the child. And this is the first story you have. Second story is later on, at the time of the Exodus, it's Yat Mitzrayim, when, uh, when the sea split into two, and everyone passes, and Moshe sings his Shirat Ayam, and then it says that Miriam Nevi'ah, Achot Aaron, came out with tupim and mecholot, with the, the drums and the dancing, and led the women with another dance. She had a, a, a women-only event, and they, they sang their own song. And there she's called a prophetess, and, and Chazal say that it says, Miriam Nevi'ah, Achot Aaron, the sister of Aaron, to tell us that she was already a prophetess before Moshe was born, when she was only the sister of Aaron, not the sister of Moshe, she would prophesy that, that my, my mother is destined to give birth to a child who would redeem Israel, and she was also um, in charge of 
reuniting their parents, their parents divorced, and she was the one who brought them back together, which is a big thing for her, as we'll see in a moment. So that's the second thing. It's just one verse, or two verses, like the, and um, I don't remember. And third story, that's behind us, by the way, in terms of the Parashori reading, we're in the middle. So there are the two episodes. The two episodes we're going to meet later on in the book of uh, Bamidbar is that at some point, uh, she's angry with Moshe. And it says, Vatedaber Moshe Vatedaber Miriam Vaaron Moshe Achihem. Miriam and Aaron come together rebuking Moshe over something concerning an Isha Kushit. And it's very interesting. It's the, they come together, but it says, Vatedaber Miriam in the singular. So she was the one leading the way. Aaron was sort of joining her, but she was the one initiating. And she's the one who gets punished for this in the end of this story. What's happening? So it's very mysterious. It says something about an Isha Kushit. So the more Pshat commentators say that he, at some point, between leaving Egypt and finding Itro, he spent some years in Africa. And he, he took an African woman. And they were angry that he took this. But Chazal have a totally different interpretation, which is what Rashi brings. And it's, it's more interesting. Uh, it says that the Shakushit was his one wife, Tzipora. And she was called, Kushit was a, no, she was a Midianit. She was the daughter of Itro, Kohen Midian. And the Midianim are not Kushim. Kushim are the descendants of Kush, which is the descendant of Ham. And Midianim come from Abraham. They're Semites. And, but that Kushit was, an, was a, a, a kind of description or a, a phrase used for very beautiful women. That just like a Kushi, someone who's black, is something that's very evident or something that you see from afar. And so the idea was that she was as beautiful, something beautiful you can't ignore, something like this. And so they have this whole, and then, so what was the rebuke? If it was a, a, an African woman, that's forbidden because it's forbidden to, to marry. But uh, if it was a, a Midianite woman and, and it's reported that he converted, what was the problem? And then they give a whole new explanation that the, the problem was that he stopped being intimate with her the moment he started prophesying, because, that, because Hashem told him so. Hashem told him. Moshe is the one case in all of Jewish history that a, that a Jew was obligated to abstain from having relationship with his wife for, up from, for the entire 40 years of the desert. So when, when, when Hashem called Moshe to bring the Torah down, and all the Jews were abstaining from their wives for three days, and then he told him, you can tell all the Jews to go back to their families, go back to their wives, except you. Because you have to be open and available for prophecy at every given moment without having to wash or having to do anything. And that was a very, very special case, which has to do with Moshe being a different kind of prophet. So he told him that you, you have to abstain from your wife in order to be available for, for your particular kind of prophecy. And, and Miriam was very angry at this. She didn't like that men separated from their wives. It was the same with her father and mother. That the father left the mother, because says, anyway, the babies will be thrown into the river by Pharaoh. And she says, it doesn't matter. You have to be with your wife, you have to give children, and also there are daughters. He, he, he didn't say to kill the daughters. So you're worse than Pharaoh, she says. So it's the same here, she's very angry that he's, but the thing is that she's wrong. And, and then Hashem comes and he says, um, you should know that 
Moshe is different from all the other prophets. And so that's the third story. We'll go into this in a second, the details going on there. But that's the third story. And then the fourth one is, is when she passes away. In Parashat Chukat, it just says that she, pass, she passes away and she's buried in the desert. And then immediately afterwards, the next verse is that all the people were suddenly very thirsty. And from this, Chazal learn that she had a special miraculous will. That the, the rock that, in the beginning of the journey in the desert, that Moses hit with the stick, when it was okay to hit, in the, be, the beginning of the journey, and that gave them water, this was all by virtue of Miriam. It was her sort of gift to the, uh, to the, to the Jewish people. And that it was a miraculous well that would move from place to place. And, and when she passed away, it, 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 it disappeared. And that's why they didn't have any water. So before going into the details, we actually want to focus on the third story. But before this, we need to notice something very important. That three out of the four stories revolve around water. She walks along the Tetevat Moshe, next to the Nile River. She sings the Shirat Hayam, her own feminine song of the sea, uh, at the splitting of the sea. And at the very end, when she passes away, then the people become thirsty, and from this we know that she had the well. So she's connected to water. More precisely, she's connected to what is called the feminine waters. At the, at the second day of creation, the, the waters of the world split for, for, into higher waters and lower waters. And the higher waters are in the heaven, and the lower waters are the, the oceans and the seas and the rivers and the, and the wells and the fountains. And the higher waters are called masculine waters, and they sort of rain from above. And the lower waters are called feminine waters. And Miriam is very much connected to feminine waters. She is accompanying the women. She's singing the song of the women. And she sort of feels with the women. And, and we see that um, she's also, her name, Miriam, could be read as Marim, which is bitter in the plural. She was named after the bitterness of the slavery, the bondage in Egypt. She could empathize with the feeling of bitter waters. When people, have, people are depressed and people are suffering, it's called that they have bitter waters. And she had a sense of strong empathy with that, and she could feel that. That's why when they were thirsty, uh, it was through her that they were given water. When she passed away, then um, the, the well couldn't give water anymore. When Moshe and Aaron tried to bring back the well, they were very angry at the people, and they rebuked the people. They called them Morim. Morim is rebellious people. Morim is written without a vav. It has the same letters as Miriam. And, and the idea is that she was able to lead in an empathetic way. She was able to lead in a way, I know you're suffering. I know you're bitter. I know you're feeling that it's very hard and harsh. And let's work together from the bottom up. Let's have those, the feminine waters that are springing like from a well. And let's, let's, let's come out of Egypt in this way. She was also, according to Chazal, she was one of the, um, how do you call the women who helped the midwife. child? The, oh, midwife. She was one of the midwives. She was Pu'ah, according to the... And uh, again... Very, uh, positive, but in a way that echoes the negative, which is a different than just... You can have... There are two, kind, there are two kinds of positive... Thinking. There's part of the thinking that sort of ignores the fact you're feeling bad. It says, come on, it'll be great. It'll be good. And that's, that's, that's leaping. 
But the bounding, if you're only empathizing with the negative, you're not bounding or leaping. You're not going anywhere. You're just sinking into, the <laughs> into only being empathetic. You have to, there's a combination of being empathetic and being positive. And that was Miriam. Wasn't so, she also considered part, either Shifra or Pua? Yeah, Pua. Yeah. So when she passed away, uh, the, the whole incident that caused Moshe and Aaron not to come into the land of Israel, that they didn't marry to come land, that they hid the rock when they should have spoken to the rock. Again, 40 years ago, it was okay to... That's another, by the way, transition from masculine to feminine. At the beginning of the 40-year exodus, uh, the, the people of Israel were still young, and it was like a little rock, and it's okay to use, to sort of hit the rock, that is to use discipline in education. It's okay to use discipline with the child. 40 years later, and the people grew, matured, and now you have to speak to the rock, not hit the rock. And that's, you have to work with it, not work sort of against it or above it. And when she passed away, they, he, they reverted back to the kind of masculine approach that they knew, which is saying, morim, rebuking, you are a rebellious people, and hitting the rock. It's the same, it's the same kind of energy. Hitting the rock is just a, a, an outer reflection of this kind of speech, Shimuna Hamorim, you are rebellious. And the Morim, look, it's written just like Miriam, but it echoes her absence. Her absence is sorely, she's sorely missed when he utters that word that it sort of insults the Jewish people. And he calls them Morim. It's like, the, it's like you almost hear, Miriam never called us that way. Miriam would never speak to us using that kind of word. That's beautiful. Her name is present in order to show how much she's missing, how much she's absent. So these are the three out of the four stories have to do with water, specifically feminine water, specifically the experience of uh, this whole image that coming out of Egypt is a... Uh, just turn it off right now. Uh, this whole image of coming out of Egypt in a way that you don't leap above the bitterness that you have. And that's why the bitterness comes to haunt them again and again, by the way, throughout their travels in the that they miss Egypt, or suddenly three days after the splitting of the sea, they find bitter waters and they say, oh, no, we, we shouldn't have left. And it's all the, the bitter um, residues and the things that are left behind. You know, the, it's the Egyptians are still somehow within you. And Miriam was the kind of figure who, who throughout the, the desert was able to soothe and calm them in a way that, again, echoed the bitterness, but also would lift, would lift you above them. Because... Miriam, you can also read it as merim. It lifts you up. So it's both marim, the, it echoes the bitterness. Marim is bitter in the plural. And merim is lifts up. She could lift you up through this empathy that reflects what you're doing. Now, there's another image here. Because when you think about a well, and you think about lower waters, another thing that comes to mind is mirrors. It, there's a verse that says, As water is to the face, that it reflects the face, so does the heart mirror. One heart mirrors another heart. The heart, not the head. And, and waters are like mirrors. It's very beautiful that in English, the word mirror sim, is so similar to Miriam. There's something about Miriam, and there's something about water that's mirror-like, especially lower waters. You don't, 
When you look at the heavens, you don't experience a mirror. You, you, it's, it's thin and transparent, but waters are mirror-like. And when you look into a, a well, you see your own reflection. When you look into the waters, you see your own reflection. And this whole idea of empathy was that she could mirror what you're feeling and then sort of encourage you to move forward. And so there's a deep connection somehow between Miriam and mirrors. And this comes about in an amazing way in the only story that doesn't directly have to do anything to do with water, which is the third story. The story of her rebuking Moshe, being wrong, being punished, but still there's something incredible going on there that now we're going to see an amazing Hasidic sweetening. Because that's a hard story. She gets punished, she gets, she gets leprosy. And everyone, by the way, the entire Jewish people, they all wait for her for a whole week. They stop their journeys for a whole week, waiting for her to get better. This is another, they reflect back to her, they echo back to her how much they love her, how much she's been with them through their hard times, and they're going to be with her through their hard times. That's another beautiful thing that comes out of this. But it's the most difficult story, in a way, even more than the story of her passing away, which is which, from which we know about the well. So it's the one story that's sort of difficult to understand, and, and we want to sort of crack this open, figure this out. And it's the one story that doesn't have anything to do with water, but it has everything to do with mirrors, as we'll see in a moment. So again, going back to the story, the story was, in the third episode, that Miriam and Aaron, both, but Miriam was leading the way, but Tedaber Miriam, were angry at Moshe for abstaining from being intimate with his wife, Tzipporah. And they said, according to the Midrash, they say, uh, we are also prophets, and we haven't left our spouses, and we're both married, and we're, with our, we're having regular uh, relationships with our spouses, and why is Moshe different? And then what Hashem does is that he, he uh, prophes- he comes to them, he reveals himself to all three at the same moment, as Miriam and Aaron are with their spouses at that moment. And then they run looking for water to sort of wash their hands so they can, they can address this prophecy. And he tells them, you see, this is what I can't have in this period of time. They were in the desert. I need someone that is in a different place. And then, he, and then he, there's a, a few verses in which he tells them how different Moshe's prophecy is from all other prophets. And there's something incredible here. So it turns out that Miriam is here like the representative of all prophets who aren't Moshe. So in a way, Moshe and Miriam are the archetypes of two kinds of prophecy. One prophecy is that only Moshe ever had or will have. Even the Mashiach won't have that kind of prophecy because we're, we're not supposed to have a second Torah. So this Moshe is one kind of prophecy and Miriam and all other prophets a past and future is the other kind of prophecy. But she is here. They're sort of standing together. One, Aaron is next to her, what? but she's the main one. Why she, she cared about Zipporah. That's what Miriam cares to the whole thing. Miriam, Miriam she doesn't cares. like that. Yeah, yeah. She cares yeah. about injustice in general. Yeah for, yeah, for women who are not treated well by their men. That's, yeah, she, she also, there's, yeah, so in the book, there's a whole explanation that she was like a kind of couples mediator. And she would bring couples together. It's the thing that she, she had a talent in. But it could also be that she was troubled <coughs> by the fact that intimacy is a holy thing. It's yeah. It's not 
Yeah, yeah so th th this is where the story will lead. So that's the, anyway, the, the point is this. So the, the, he takes them out, and then he tells them, you, you, you can't compare. It's two different kinds of prophecies. And then there's a few verses, and what he says here, it says, a regular prophet, he says, to regular prophets, all prophets, I, I reveal to myself as, in, as through a mirror. I don't remember the exact wording, I'm sorry. But uh, it's through mirrors. However, Moshe, lo ken avdi Moshe, not so, is my slave, uh, Moshe. Pe'el pe'adaberbo, uh, I speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face. Bemar'e velo bechidot, in direct vision, not through riddles or dreams. Um, yeah, before it says, Bemar'a elavet vada bechalom adaberbo, it's in a dream, not through dreams or riddles. Uh, and he sees the picture or the image of God, which is another important, difficult thing to understand. But the, the main thing for us here is that there's a word that it repeats itself in both descriptions, but with a different vowel, different pronunciation. And that word is mar'a versus mar'e. If you see a Torah scroll, it doesn't have the vowels. It looks the same. But the vowels are different. For the regular prophets, it says... I see, I reveal to him through a mirror. But the Moses, Moshe type prophecy, he says, in direct vision, not in riddles or through mirrors or through dreams, not a reflection, like a first-hand prophecy. Prophets, it somehow go through a prism or a screen or their own consciousness. Chazal called these two types of prophecy They call this Aspaklaria ha'me'ira and Aspaklaria she'ina me'ira. Aspaklaria is a mirror or a window and it's called a, a, a luminous or a, a something that has light, an unenlightened or a luminous mirror slash window or a non-luminous uh, window slash mirror. Now, it's very clear that the Aspaklaria HaMeira, the Moshe's prophecy, is like a very clear window. It's a window that's very, very clear, and it's like totally transparent, a totally transparent window that you can see everything. But it's unclear exactly what the Aspaklaria She'ina Meira, the non-transparent mirror window thing is. And there are two explanations for this. One is that it's a translucent window. It's sort of semi-transparent. So the regular prophets, they also look through a window and they see divine truth, but not as clearly. So it's not as high a prophecy. That's why they can't give the Torah. They can give prophecies, they can say many things, but it's not as clear. Or as so if you go with these images, it would appear that they're both sort of holding windows to the heavens. But Moshe is able to look through a completely transparent window, and the other prophets, they look through a translucent, semi-transparent window, and they can see not as well or not as much in all the details that the other one can see. 
That's one explanation. There is another explanation for what is a the non-luminous uh, mirror. And the second explanation is that it's like a mirror. A mirror. It's not a window at all. Which means that the prophet is prophesying in a completely different way. He's not looking at the heavens because a mirror won't help him. He's turning his back on the heavens and he's holding the mirror. It's like a selfie camera. Basically, today, we each have a, heart, a smartphone and we have two cameras. So when we're using the, the, the rear camera, that's like, the, that's like Moses' prophecy. Because we're holding it up and we're looking straight forward and we have a very good camera. It's usually, by the way, a better camera. And uh, it's higher quality camera and it goes forward. And then there's also the front camera, which is the selfie camera, which is what we do, of course, as we all do today, is we turn our back to the scene or the people we want to take a picture of, and we're using the front, the front camera, which is, which is lower quality, although today, probably in the newest iPhones, it's all the same. And, and then we take a picture, a selfie, and we don't look directly at what we're seeing. We're only seeing it through the screen. And another important thing that happens is that we are in the picture. It's us and the scene. If it's just a regular picture, we don't see, we, we're not there. We're invisible. We're behind the camera. But when, you, when we take a selfie, we are in the picture and our friends and the, the place that we are, whatever it is. So according to this, the second interpretation, the, the difference between the two kinds of prophecies is between the, the two cameras of the, of the smartphone. Now, there's a beautiful idea in Hasidus that um, the reason Aaron was there with Miriam and they were both representatives of the non-Moshe prophecy is that they correspond to the two types. That Aaron, who was a man, also, also masculine, like his brother, but still a regular prophet, for him it was like a translucent window. He was, a, he was a man, he looked up into the sky, he didn't look at the ground, he didn't look at himself, he didn't uh, turn his back on... He was a man, so he was looking up, and he was holding this kind of uh, window, but he, he wasn't as uh, a high a prophecy as Moshe. But Miriam, she corresponds to the other interpretation. For her, it was a mirror. That's why she had a well. That's why her prophecy, she cared about the women, she cared about the people, she cared about what's going on down here. Because her prophecy was all about looking downwards, looking at this world, and taking a kind of selfie. And, and, and how could she empathize? Because she was in the picture. If you're a prophet that looks through windows, whether it's transparent or translucent, you don't think about yourself, you don't think about your own feelings in many ways, you transcend, you leap over your own feelings, and then you prophesy from that kind of perspective. And people feel that they're not in the picture either. Because you, you're just showing them what's above. But if you, if you do a selfie, then you remember yourself and you don't feel that it contradicts somehow being a prophet. If you're, if you're a prophet that goes through this non-luminous, prophecy, according to the second interpretation of this kind of prophecy, that it's a mirror and you're in the picture, there's no contradiction between having your personality, your needs, uh, your feelings inside the prophecy. It's, it's, there's no problem. I can, t I can, I can take a, a, a picture, a snapshot of divine truth, and I'm in the picture. It's, I'm part of the thing. I, I need to integrate it with the thing. 
Now, the general uh, traditional approach is that Moshe is the higher prophet, and it's the higher prophecy, and, that's, and that was the whole point of the story, by the way, that she's punished for comparing herself and Aaron to Moshe. But then comes Chassidut, and comes the Alter Rebbe, first Rebbe of Chabad, and he flips everything upside down in the most unbelievable way. He says, yes, yes, it's true that the Aspaklaria Meira, the, the transparent mirror, Moshe's, is the highest. Obviously, it's the highest. It's called Or Yashar. It's the, it's the direct light for, coming from heaven, passing through the window, into Moshe's mouth. Uh, the Shechina is speaking through, through his mouth. And obviously, it's the higher one. But there's also a different perspective, a different way, through which if you look at it, then you realize that the other kind of prophecy, the Aspaklaria She'ina Meira, which, by the way, is the same kind of prophecy that Mashiach himself will have. Because we said, it's neither before nor after Moshe will everyone abstain from his wife, and will anyone ever have that kind of prophecy. So he says, the other prophecy, in a way, is higher. Why? And then he says this, this uh, image. Imagine that you're standing in front of a mirror, and you're holding a flashlight. So the flashlight is here, and I'm here. And the light is coming and I turn it on and it goes all the way. And this is, this is the straight light, the direct light. Imagine, this is like God holding the flashlight. And it goes to the mirror, hits the mirror, comes back. Does it stop where the flashlight was? It doesn't stop where the, the returning light doesn't stop where the flashlight was. It on and it illuminates my own face. So the idea is this, God is holding a flashlight, so to speak. He's bringing down prophecies. And it's very high, so the flashlight of Hashem. But if that's the straight light. But the returning light, although it starts below, it doesn't start from above. It's a lower kind of prophecy. When it goes up, it passes the flashlight, and it somehow illuminates God himself. It, it starts below, but it reaches higher than the original flashlight. This is a bit, you can you take a ball and you throw it down, and it sort of rises be, higher than where you threw it. It's the same image. This is called The returning light goes back to its highest original origin, which is higher than the original straightforward or downward pointing light. So it says if you look at it from this perspective, it turns out that the mirror prophecy is higher. It goes higher. It somehow illuminates a higher divine truth than what the more masculine prophecy could could ever reflect. And then he says, and the reason it goes higher is that the prophet looks in the mirror and he sees both the prophecy and himself. And this connection, this combination, this integration of divine truths with your own psychological makeup and place and where you are and your brokenness and your bitterness and your imperfection, this combination of divine perfection and human imperfection this together, although it's not as transparent and lucid and uh, eternal as Moses' prophecy, it ends up being higher. And, and he says, this is why, by the way, that the, the women in Egypt were inspired by Miriam to seduce their husbands to be intimate with them and then have all the children that we had in Egypt. They used mirrors for this. They would stand in front of the mirror and they would tell their husband, look, I'm so beautiful in the mirror, I'm more beautiful than you are. And they would stand together, and then suddenly something about, for the husband, 
seeing the reflection of himself and his wife together in the mirror seduce the husbands back to the wives. More than just looking at the women. There is the seeing, like in the mirror, seeing them together, all this was inspired by Miriam. And then these mirrors were then utilized in the building of the tabernacle for the washstand of the priests, for the priests, something very, very holy, where they would, again, water, for them to wash their hands. And Moshe didn't like this. He said, he said to Hashem, why are you taking the mirror that was used for something so earthly and you're using it in the tabernacle for something so holy? And, Moshe, and, and Hashem told him, you don't understand anything. This is my favorite part of the tabernacle. This is the best part. The part that you don't understand. And he doesn't understand because now he's away from his wife. But Miriam does. And again, it's mirrors. The mirrors that we... So this is just a beautiful Hasidic Torah from the Alter Rebbe that he says that this mirror kind of prophecy, this is... It sort of encapsulates the entire... All the characteristics of feminine spirituality. And he says that when Mashiach comes, he'll have this kind of prophecy because the feminine... Prophecy is on the rise. And that's the kind of prophecy, that's the kind of spirituality we need in our generation. It's, it doesn't work to leap in a kind of, you know, heavenly pictures, heavenly postcards of the ideal life. Those postcards now have to include us with everything that we have. It has to be very authentic. It has to ring true. You can't have slogans or flags or ideas that are sort of leaping behind. By the way, the word for flag in Hebrew, degel, is the same letters as dilug. And it, and it also corresponds a little bit to the English word ideology. <laughs> There's something about ideologies and flags and leaping that all goes together. It's, it's good to have a slogan if, if you're in the picture. If you can take a selfie with, this, with the slogan and it's, and it's really... You, 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 people feel that, you're, that you speak from the heart. You're not just saying it because you believe and because you're... So th- this whole idea is that Hasidus is all about we don't want to say any slogans that we don't, that don't ring true in our hearts. It has to mirror itself. We have to, everything we learn in the Torah, we have to see, we have to make sure it's not just intellectual, it's not just something that I, that I hold to be true, that I believe is to be true someday. I need to bring myself to a place that I see it reflected within me that I see, that I can spontaneously say it, even, let's say, in my own words. If I can't say it in my own words, and I have to rely on something that's less slogan-like, then that's trying to emulate a, a, like a past kind of prophecy or a past kind of Torah. That, that all this is from above to below, top-down. It's not bottom-up. Bottom-up is I need to connect with it, and it needs to rhyme and chime with who I am, and then it goes much, much higher. And then, and then you feel Hashem there. This is why the returning light illuminates Hashem's face. Hashem is present in this kind of spirituality, this kind of prophecy, this kind of, uh, of approach to, to serving Hashem. So uh, this, in a nutshell, <laughs> is Miriam's, uh, Miriam's feminine spirituality for our generation. Thank you so much for watching this video. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please leave your comment below. Also, if you like the video, like, subscribe to the channel, share it, and consider maybe becoming a Patreon to support these videos. Thank you so much.